Welcome to the Den of Dissidents. This is a show where we challenge the current culture and mainstream talking points of the day. What is the news telling us? What is the culture telling us? Where is our civilization headed? And by what standard do we judge these issues? Are you a dissident? Let's find out. What's going on, people? Once again, back in the building. Okay, before we get into it, just want to do a brief introduction on who I got on the show today. Um, today, I have Dr. Wilfried O'Reilly. He is a professor and an author. He, he wrote a book called Hate Crime Hoax, which talks about how there were hate crime hoaxes that were taking place in the country. Um kind of like the Jesse Smollett whole incident with people acting like they were attacked by white people or whoever. And then it turned out to be a hoax. So he documents all of the hoaxes in one of his books, in that book. And then um, I interviewed him about his book, Taboo. Um, it's called 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. And we discussed some controversial things. Um in his book, he talks about the black rate of violent crime. He says uh, it's roughly 2.5 times higher than the white rate of violent crime uh, when demographic variables are taken into account. He says there's no racial differences in the rate of police-involved shootings. So um, his book is making the case that, you know, despite what the media is telling you about black men or black people being hunted by the police at an alarming rate, at a high rate, he's saying that, well, that's not true. It's just not accurate. Um, according to his book, like I just read, when everything is taken into account, there's no racial differences in the, ra in the rate of police-involved shootings. So we discussed that. Um, also, he says... Uh, Interracial crime is remarkably rare, but 75 to 80% of it occurs against white people. Um, he also talks about minorities being racist, and he uses the Nation of Islam as an example, saying that uh, Nation of Islam holds that white people are an inferior race created by a black scientist. I think I heard about that years ago, this guy named Yakub, a mad scientist who created the white race or something like that. Um, this is what, I don't know if it's the 5% religion or the nation of Islam teaches that, but yeah, it's in there. Um, so we, we talked about some controversial things. These are some things that uh, are not talked about in mainstream media. As a matter of fact, you, they teach you, they talk about the opposite. So you walk away thinking that, you know, um, black people are being hunted down by the police just because of the color of their skin, this, this, and that. Um, so yeah, check out the book. I'm going to put out a link in the description. This is actually, I have the book on screen, so you can check it out, but I'll put a link in the description. And, um, one other thing I wanted to plug was, or is philosophy 101. So philosophy 101 is a course by Jay Dyer. Uh, it was developed by him. He's a, he's an author and lecturer on geopolitics, theology, philosophy, and culture. So if you're seeking truth, um, knowledge, wisdom, philosophy 101 is for you. It's a course that will teach you how to recognize lies, propaganda, truth, if you're being scammed, um, just teaching you how to think pretty much. Uh, it also helps you, it can help you develop um, or learn how to communicate effectively and learn how to argue your points. Um, the reality is, I mean, everybody has a philosophy. Everybody has a worldview. The question is, what is a good worldview? What is a good philosophy? So, you know, anybody down from the uh, from the janitor that works at McDonald's to the president of the United States, we all have a worldview. We all have a philosophy. But is your philosophy correct? That is the question. The people that run the world, they have a philosophy, they have a worldview, and that worldview has consequences. My question is, how is that working out for all of us on this planet? 
how are these philosophies working out for a society? Um, the world is filled with bad philosophy. It's filled with bad worldviews. So learn about how you can develop a good philosophy, good worldview with philosophy 101 with Jay Dyer. And one thing I'll tell you is that this guy is entertaining. This is not your grandfather's philosophy class. This guy, he, he's very humorous, comedic. He, he makes it very entertaining. Just learning about philosophy, learning about worldviews and ideologies and things like that. It, it's very fun. Um, there's not a dull moment in the course. So check it out. Um, yeah. Don't be a boring bag of rocks. Learn wisdom, learn truth, learn some good philosophy. Peace. Today we have special guest, Dr. Wilfred Riley, associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University. He holds a PhD in political science from Southern Illinois University. He's the author of Hate Crime Hoax, and taboo 10, 10 facts you can't talk about thanks for coming on the show today dr wilford yeah of course glad glad to stop by appreciate it so let's just jump into it um what inspired you to write a book on hate crime hoaxes at a time when the prevailing storyline is that there's an epidemic of white hate crime hoaxes or i'm sorry white hate crimes against blacks and minorities well, the theme of uh, most of my books has been kind of bullshit, frankly. So, I mean, like, I'm on the center-right politically, but I'm not really that radical in either direction. And I noticed, like, I have a pretty diverse group of buddies. I was born on the south side of Chicago. I grew up in nearby East Aurora, so very integrated areas. I live in Kentucky now, so it's kind of a working, poor, white community, although I live in an upscale region of it. But, I mean, I noticed that people across the aisle believe all kind of things that just seem empirically crazy. Like the one that inspired taboo is the idea for both blacks and whites that there's this huge rate of interracial crime. Like you see all these fight videos online and so on. And it just struck me. I mean, in my in my life, I've definitely been in some fights, but I think two of them were across racial lines. And I had a pretty interesting life. So I, I started wondering how true that was. And I actually find out in the book, by the way, it, it's completely untrue. Uh, violent crime involving blacks and whites is about 3% of serious, what we call index crime. It's actually about 80% minority on white, by the way. So the idea that we're being stalked by Klansmen is even more unrealistic than the reverse. But the, the guiding line, that was just one example, is that a lot of the things people believe in are not real. You saw this a lot during COVID. And each book looks at this. So, I mean, Taboo looks at 10 popular urban myths. I actually wrote another book called Alt-Wrongs that we're still kind of pitching. It was a little harder to find a niche for that one but looking at some of these myths on the right. And the first book, Hate Crime Hoax, was just the simplest. I noticed that a whole bunch of these like high profile racial incidents that were being publicized in this kind of like, we're almost at war uh, tone, were, were turning out not to be real. So, I mean, you've got Jussie Smollett, obviously, mocked by uh, Dave Chappelle as the mad Frenchman, Juicy Smollett. That turned out to just be complete nonsense. But you also had Covington Catholic, the kids that allegedly attacked a Native American Indian elder and tried to take, take a sacred rain drum. You had Bubba Wallace, where one of the big guys in NASCAR claimed that a hangman's noose had been placed in his garage. Yasmin Saweed, this sort of sexualized group of white men, had tried to rip away her hijab. Um, you know, and just on and on and on down the line. And when you started looking at these cases, almost all of them fell apart. And so the book goes through, I used modern quantitative research techniques. I mean, everything from Google, Google Scholar up to serious platforms like Lexus to look for incidents that fit this basic pattern where a, a story of sort of racial conflict had been reported nationally. The thing that happened, a noose on a college campus, quote unquote, for example, had been almost universally attributed to, quote unquote, hate. And then three, the story had collapsed completely with more national or serious regional coverage of that. And looking within about a five year time frame, I was able to find more than 400 of these cases, 100 of the most important and in some cases funniest ones make it into the book. But that right. data set right now that, that began as these 400 cases is now up to 1,000 individual cases, which are contained within about 600 case studies. 
So it's actually a fairly serious uh, work of, if you will, social science. I mean, I actually wrote an article based on the book for the journal Academic Questions. But the book itself is a, a public facing, sometimes pretty entertaining. Look at why this keeps happening. Like why literally the biggest stories that I just mentioned, you could throw in Duke lacrosse, you could throw in Air Force Academy where you know a general went to the campus and told black and white students to stop fighting. It turned out that one disgruntled cadet was responsible for an entire series of fake incidents. You know, University of Missouri, where there was this claim that people were writing swastikas and human crap on the walls of heavily minority dormitories. So why is this, to kind of regain that train of thought, a phenomenon that keeps keeps occurring? And, and I think I explained why in the book, like the growing sort of almost prestige that we attach to being a victim and a number of other things. So when you were doing this research, you ended up finding that... Um the uh, the storyline of whites committing uh, crimes against blacks you ended up finding out that minorities were committing a large number a large number of crimes against whites so you found the reverse yeah no one one point i want to make here so just to put this bluntly the person most likely to kill you is your wife um <laughs> you know interracial crime which both yeah tre treat it well you know but interracial crime which both sides are worried about is is a very small percentage of crime so when we look at e each year, there are between 12 and 20 million of what we call index crimes. There, there's an entire annual crime report, uh, the BJS NCVS, which means Bureau of Justice Statistics National Crime Victimization Survey, which is literally like the census for crime. I mean, same race interviewers reach out to at minimum hundreds of thousands of people, and they gather data on patterns of crime in the United States. And when you look at the BJS and CVS, I'd say 20 million crimes in a typical year, about 500,000 will be black on white violent attacks and about 100,000 will be white on black violent attacks. So this is it, itself not a massive problem in the USA. But yeah, when people on the left start saying like LeBron James famous comment, you know, we're being hunted every time we leave our homes by white policemen and vigilantes. Yeah, I mean, coming from my perspective as, you know, an educated black guy, I can say, no, that that's empirically false. Like the numbers may be tiny in either direction, but five is bigger than one. You know, there's there there's no epidemic of this. And because the most common interracial crime generally is robbery, interracial crimes actually are dominated by by minorities, especially by black Americans. So, yeah, that that's just a reality. And it's actually something that a lot of people now know, partly because of the book. But so, I mean, online, it's one of those things that's kind of like whispered about people post memes and this kind of thing. But it, it's not really discussed very often in the papers where you still do see this focus on, you know, barbecue Becky or, you know, black people being harassed in dog parks or, you know, the black victim yeah. of a hate assault. And th th those things are, of course, in you know, at least some of those cases, deplorable. But that, that's not really what crime looks like in America. Crime is massively intra-racial. 85% of Caucasian homicide victims, 92% of Black homicide victims, those are same race killings. And when interracial crime does occur, it often comes out of the hood. And yeah, it's 80 plus percent Black on white. So that, that's an example of reality being very different from the story anyone tells. So... Why do you think the national media is reporting the reverse of what you're saying? Why, why do you think they don't highlight these facts? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't I don't know if interracial crime really is a topic worthy of highlighting in the first place if you're trying to keep peace in a diverse country. But I mean, you're asking an interesting question. Why do they talk constantly about only the minority piece of it? All these stories about, you know, the caucasity of white violence in the USA and all that. Um, so again, I, I want to emphasize one last time, those stories have no resemblance to reality. They do not look like what crime looks like. Crime is intra-racial, majority of interracial crime is minority on white. But uh, why does the media insist on doing this? Uh, I think there are two reasons. One is that the U.S. media is just extremely sensationalist in the first place. So, you know, if it bleeds, it leads has been said since the 1910s. There are certain clickbait stories that we find that people respond to. You know, like warriors from one group attacking members of another very much is one of those. So, I mean, that's 
that's the reason, unfortunately, that a lot of this stuff probably gets featured. Just like, I mean, if a pit bull mauls a small child, you can pretty much guarantee that at least on local news, that's going to be the lead story of the day, no matter how many car wrecks and heart attacks and important business deals there were in that community that day. Um, and why do, why do they focus on the whites versus POC angle? Uh, I think that gets into the frank liberalism of all the media outside of maybe Fox and OAN. You know, Pew Research back in 2004 looked at the politics of uh, national desk news media journalists and found that uh, essentially 93% of them were on the left. It was The media was 7% conservative. The rest were leftists, liberals, and moderates, with most of the moderates leading to the left. So I, I think if you're going to focus on stories that are going to draw a lot of eyeballs to the television... And you're going to kind of do so from a left-wing perspective so that your villain is going to be the Proud Boys or something like that instead of, you know, the black block guys they're fighting. You're going to get the image, the impression that we have now. The problem with this, though, is that it really does scare people. So, again, th this kind of like random violence from other countrymen isn't something to worry about much at all. Like, you, you know, you can go to the fair in peace. But... The, the white on the like middle class whites attacking black people is one of the least severe problems in this country and people don't know that so they're genuinely frightened like uh skeptic research center I, I probably dropped this every second or third interview but they did a poll of urban white and black liberals where they just talked to a bunch of people standard survey techniques and what they found is that among people who define themselves as very liberal or liberal if you ask them how many unarmed brothers, how many unarmed black men are shot by the police in a typical year, 34 to 35% of them will say the number is about 1,000. Another, I think 14, 15%, I don't want to exaggerate this number, but another 14%, let's say, say the number is about 10,000. And then 8% of all of the interviewees say the number is more than that, more than 10,000. And I mean, to put this in context, there are only about 20,000 murders in a year. And I mean, we're, we're overrepresented, but black people are only responsible for half of those. I mean, they're pretty high, you know, Latino, Southern whites on tolls as well. So many people believe that the number of people killed by the cops, killed in these, we, these niche interracial incidents, is higher than the total number of people that are actually murdered, at least, you know, within that group. So th that's an example of how fear pervades society. And again, the, the idea of the book was this stuff just isn't real. You know, like in the Jussie Smollett case, the last line, but it's kind of a good example of that's not a police violence incident, but of just something that clearly, obviously didn't happen. If you're from Chicago or the surrounding area that was promoted and boosted into this national terrifying narrative for a bunch of months and then that just, you know, fell apart somewhat quietly, at least until the joke started. And Jussie doesn't stand alone. That that happens all the time. Mm. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean. Sometimes when I talk to relatives and um, and friends, I remember my brother called me. Well, I have relatives that tell me, hey, be careful when you go out there. This was around the time with the BLM riots and George Floyd and all this. And um, I think Ahmaud Arbery and I had uh, relatives telling me, be careful when you go out there because it's it's crazy. You don't know, you know, just implying that I, I need to look over my shoulder because there might be a guy with a white hood on his head and some white guy chasing me down and and, you know, the other day I had a, um, one of my relatives call me and make sure I was all right because he heard some stuff about DeSantis putting some racist policies in place, you know. And, but I wanted to touch on um, in one of your chapters, you talk about uh, the continuing oppression narrative versus reality. So the uh, narrative is that minorities are being oppressed and, you know, we we have a, a foot on our neck. And you talk about the reality. What is the reality? Well, the, the reality is that today, with affirmative action in the picture as a counterbalance, it's not that there's no racism. But today, given that counterbalance, like structural racism or whatever is going to have virtually no impact on your life. And I, I show this mathematically in the book. Like people are free to disagree with me and say, well, you know, I reran your numbers and it has a 2% impact or something like that. But the point of one of the chapters of Taboo is that the 
The argument that we see that sort of all gaps in performance between groups are caused by prejudice is simply false. And it's actually worth going through this at a little bit of depth because this is kind of the Ibram Kendi, the Robin DeAngelo argument that you're going to hear constantly as a young man in prep school or just high school or in college, grad school, first job, so on down the line. And I look at that pretty empirically, and I don't find any evidence for it whatsoever. But I mean, what Kendi says is really pretty simple. Like he points at a big focus of his is income. So he'll point at the average income per household, which is even that gap's not all that large. It's like 45000 on average for blacks and 62000 for whites. And he'll say, well, unless you're willing to accept the genetic inferiority of black people, and it's, it's a tricky argument. It's like, I, I disagree with the guy. It's a well-made argument. But unless you're willing to accept the genetic inferiority of black people, what could explain this other than some kind of racism? We might not have found the exact policy. It might date back to redlining. But aren't the, aren't the options inferiority and racism? And the answer to that is no. There's a third option, which you could call sort of culture and systems or something like that. But I mean, if you actually start if you take out your computer and you start adjusting for the things that differ between these giant groups like blacks and whites, almost all of these gaps just vanish. They go down to like 1%, which I'm more than willing to admit is probably still the effect of racism. But I mean, it, like with the income thing, first, the average black person, this is the modal average, the most common, the means a little different, but the modal average black person is 27 years old. For white people, the average is 58. So this is something that I learned years ago, actually in a junior executive role. It had nothing to do with being an academic. And it just always struck with me, st stuck with me because every single time you hear someone talking about something, whether it's crime data on the right, whether it's wealth on the left, that doesn't adjust for the fact that the black guy, again, at least in mode, is 30 years younger than the white guy. You're just, my uncle would call it talking yin-yang. You're just saying something completely meaningless. You're comparing two totally different individuals. Uh, another difference is region. So about half of all Blacks and Mexicans live in the South and Southwest, Mexican-Americans. That's just obvious and undisputed. If you go to Arizona, Alabama, wages are much lower in the South and Southwest. These are regions of the country that border a developing world state agrarian regions of the country, people there have traditionally been farmers, many still are, so on down the line. So you have to adjust for that. You have to compare black guys in Manhattan to white guys in Manhattan. And just on down the line, like a controversial one would be test scores. But I mean, African-American students, legendarily, their whole books with titles like, with, like acting white, African-American students legendarily focus a lot on sports, social life, do very well in those arenas, study about half as much as Asians, two thirds as much as whites. This isn't genetic or anything like that, but it tells on the test. So like the average SAT for the country is always over a thousand, usually well over it. The black SAT is 950. So you have to adjust for that. You're, you know, 90 to 120 points down on the boards, just on and on and on and on. And like when you adjust for that stuff today, the average black guy today, if you compare a dude who lives in Dearborn, Michigan, about a third black, third white, third Arab with his buddy of a different race who lives in Dearborn, Michigan, and they have the same qualifications across, say, the black guy, the white guy, and the Arabic guy. Those guys are going to end up in very, very similar places in life. So when people talk about systemic racism, what your listeners will find is that almost invariably what's being mentioned is like a first order difference between black and white people. Like black women get less prescription pain medication than white women. Now, first of all, I don't, that is an example of calling almost everything racist, by the way. Like one of the biggest problems in the white community is opiate addiction. Uh, I don't want to say like of them, but 100,000 Caucasian Americans, something like that, die each year of opiate overdoses. So it, it's a real stretch to take the fact that we choose not to use these drugs and then say, look, racism. But you're, you're taking that first order difference, like black people get prescribed this less. And you're just not asking questions like, do black people want to use opiates? which are widely seen as one of the vices of, you know, our friendly rival group in this country. Are black people asking for the drugs? You know, is there a difference in prescription between white and black doctors? Like sometimes you'll find racism, but you have to get out there and actually ask intelligent questions to see like what that gap is. 
And it's never what it's presented as being. And again, I'm, I'm a long talker, so this is like the last thing here. But this is true for all these gaps. Like, if you're a businessman, you constantly hear about the male-female pay gap. Make sure the female executives here are well-treated. You know, we know what the wage gap is nationally. There is no wage gap nationally between men and women if you just adjust for really simple things like, are the women working? Finding this out years ago was one of the things that made me really cynical about the profession of statistics, even though it's the one that I went into. So if you say, well, women make, what is it now, 77 cents to the man's dollar? That figure generally includes all the women that are housewives and home managers and don't work at all. I mean, that's still like a fourth of women. Certainly lower figures like 59 cents do. But even if you're just looking at working people, you have to ask, are they working in the same job? Do they work the same number of hours? Are they accepting the same promotions? I don't think anyone doubts that women take on most of the childcare and men spend more hours hustling in the office on average. So unless you do these kind of calculations, and maybe women do less of that because they have to take care of the kids. I mean, but unless you do these kind of calculations, you're, you're just saying nothing. So most systemic racism claims consist of just kind of saying nothing. Like you find a gap, you point it out, and you say you found racism. And it's just as easy to do this in reverse, by the way. Like I have a lot of working class white students in Appalachia, and they're, fu they're as funny as anybody else. And they'll say things like, oh, what about the NBA? You know, what about the Biden administration? Like, I mean, what are you, are you, are you saying that they're actively racist against white people? Like, what, this just doesn't mean anything. Right. Who are the best hoopers? Yeah, <laughs> it could be a reverse argument. Mm -hmm. I've heard, um, I think Larry Elder, he said, I don't know if he got this quote from Thomas Sowell, but he basically said that racism is on life support. And um, till this day, again, this is just one of these storylines that I hear repeated from family members and relatives. I had one friend who lives in a uh, upper class neighborhood told me that one of his biggest fears is raising a black son. Meanwhile, he didn't finish college. His parents went to medical school and um, he lives in a suburban area amongst a lot of white people. And uh, he's doing well for himself and his kids go to a private school and he lives better than basically all the friends I have or that I know. Hmm. But um, it's just it's something that, you know, um, I think has been just we've been been bombarded with and so we operate as if these things are a reality when our daily lives actually reflect something different and um it, it's just crazy to me um another thing you talk about is you have a chapter on the trump hate crimes and resulting wave of hoaxes so were there hoaxes that were used to make like trump supporters look racist or look bad yeah, there were a ton of them. I mean, the one that comes to mind is the uh, young black woman at Bowling Green who claimed she was followed by white men sort of calling her a dog and throwing rocks. It was one of the few cases that made me angry until you realized, oh, this is just a fake. Like, there's no video of it. There's no evidence of it. So there were specific cases. But more broadly, one of the claims that was made against Trump was that, like, just Trump existing increased hate in the USA. And there were a lot of tricks that were done to kind of make it seem like this was the case. So you can still find this article. But the Washington Post ran a piece that claimed that there was a 226% increase in hate crimes in counties that hosted Trump rallies. And I looked at the methods for this, and someone might correct this. I haven't done the analysis for a while. But what they found, as I recall, is that hate crimes in counties where Trump held a rally increased like 2%. Whereas hate crimes in counties where Trump didn't hold a rally also increased, but they increased by a little under 1%. So the, if this makes sense, the 2% increase is 200% as big as the 1% increase. So you're, people are playing all these sorts of numbers, games, and so on. The reality is that, of course, hate crimes didn't increase by 230% nationally because of Donald Trump. I mean, that would mean again, a move toward sort of racial war. It would mean the 11,000 or so offenses in a year would have almost tripled, right? So that that's not what happened. What happened is this very technical, tiny change that probably matches population growth that was just spun in this fashion. And there, were, there was a lot of that with Donald Trump. Uh, I remember another thing with Trump is that the FBI got their UCR reporting system improved a little bit. And they, a thousand, oh, it was, there were a thousand more hate crimes, like the second year Trump was in office, allegedly, like 2017, could be wrong about the year, could be 2018. 
But what nobody noted when they said that is that there were also a thousand more police departments that recorded their data. One of the things about American crime data, by the way, is that it's pretty badly reported unless you use the BJS, the victim census that I talked about, which is why I only use the BJS. And by the way, according to the BJS, like there is a high black crime rate, but it's not hyper through the roof. Like before you adjust for age and so on, the black crime rate across all violent crimes is about 2.3 times the white crime rate. So, you know, it's there. It's a problem. There are more tough black neighborhoods than white neighborhoods. But you'll often see these crazy figures, you know, black people are 17 times as likely to do X offense. And that tends to come from what's called the UCR data reporting system. And the FBI UCR data reporting system has a bunch of issues. So like last year, I think 11,000, 18,000 police departments reported. And the police departments that are least likely to report tend to be in smaller, poor white communities that probably, frankly, have pretty high crime rates. So you'll get these results, like of the districts that turned in data, we find that black people and Puerto Ricans are very heavily overrepresented. I'm not making any excuses here, but that's probably because like New York City and Baltimore are way more likely to turn in data than like Holler County, West Virginia. So anyway, like there, there's some issues with how we count and code all this stuff. But this is just one of the more ridiculous examples I've ever seen. Hate crimes increase, but hate crimes increase because a thousand more departments figured out the system. Like if each department reported one hate crime, if this makes sense, that would have covered the increase in hate crimes that was attributed to Donald Trump. So when you actually get into social science, you'll see that we sometimes do find some brilliant stuff. I mean, like they're, they're working on large language models right now. Can you figure out how people learn? Just fascinating. But I mean, like there's also just a lot of this back and forth about numbers. Like, oh, you're trusting the 2019 data. I find that very dubious given lower reporting rates and I counter you with the 2018 data. You know, so that's, that's a lot of what you saw under Donald Trump, sort of numbers mistakes being presented as graphic changes to the country. If I had to guess, I would say using the best data I've seen and like the overall increase in the hate crime data set, hate crimes probably did increase by several hundred during the full Trump administration because of all the black, white, left, right racial tensions in the country. I mean, Trump wasn't exactly a unifier, but there's there's no massive surge. And also, by the way, the, the groups most likely to be targeted are very often groups like Jews. It's, it's not what you think. It's, again, not, not like white guy chasing black guy down the street with a bat. It, it's a pretty complex picture. Like Jews and Asians are the most victimized groups for a lot of these kinds of incidents. Hmm, that's interesting. You don't really hear that too often. Um, so do you think the media is like uh, manipulating some of these statistics or like repackaging them? <laughs> Yeah, I think you can do almost anything with numbers. I mean, so, for example, like the black crime rate thing, you know, so like I said, we actually know the black crime rate. Like if you go to the BJS and you look at literally all of the data, like the census of crime victims extrapolated to the whole country, we know the black crime rate's a little more than twice the white crime rate. And as a black community, we should work on that. But when you get beyond that point of like the comprehensive national data, yeah, I mean, you can say anything with numbers. I mean, like if I were a black activist, I could turn away from crime overall and I could point to some unique thing like bestiality or child pornography. And I, I don't mean any offense to Caucasian listeners, but I can virtually guarantee the majority of the people arrested for that would be white. Um, you can take, you break it down by age, you can break it down by sex. I mean, if you break down the black murder rate by age and sex, it's not hard to get a black murder rate for some cohorts that's, you know, 100 people per 100,000. You know, so I, I think that the media on left and right very often seizes on statistics that look friendly to their audience, regardless of whether or not those are the best statistics available. And it, it's not difficult to do this. I mean, and they're, they're whole tricks to look for. Like, where's the data set from? Is it from a particular area or is it from the whole country? What, what year is the data set from? What kind of qualifying words are they using? Are they saying things like, you know, the white male crime rate and, and so on down the line? Right. Yeah, there's a lot of different factors and variables. Um, one of your chapters in um, your book, Taboo, is titled The Police Aren't Murdering Black People. So that would be a very controversial claim. And again, 
when you watch like MSNBC, especially, you will hear this um, often implied, like the police are basically hunting you down. How do you, um, I, I know we talked about this earlier, but how do you dispute that? Well, let me, let me ask you a question, just as an intelligent guy who happens to be quote unquote of color, like how many unarmed black men would you, would you, would you guess are shot by the police every year? Well, honestly, I've read about some <laughs> statistics, but um, I was sad and, I, and I've seen your material, but I'm going to say um, if I believe the news, I would think it's 100. But since I've read some stuff, I think about 50, maybe. OK, so you I mean, even you as an educated guy are saying, you know, I, I might still guess 50. The news would say 100. And again, the average person thinks it's a thousand, something like that. The actual number last year was seven. So, I mean, like when I, I got some heat for the title of that chapter because people would point to George Floyd and say, don't you think that was a murder? It was certainly a killing. I mean, there are levels of homicide. You know, I mean, I, I think absent some of the racial tensions around that case, bluntly, there would have been more questions asked about, for example, level of fentanyl intoxication during a normal criminal proceeding. That doesn't mean we were seeing, you know, A1 policing at work. I mean, I think most juries would have convicted Chauvin of a couple of things. But nonetheless, people would people would bring that to me and say, well, don't you think that's an example of a murder? And, you know, you, there are certainly situations where you'll say, yeah, you know, Tamir Rice. But when you make a statement like that, you're making it at the mean. You're making it sweepingly. So if I said black people aren't murdering white people, calm down at a conservative event, that doesn't mean that there's no black murderer of a white guy at large in the country. It means that out of the 20 million crimes and the 20,000 murders in the USA in a typical year, 500 involve a black guy killing a white guy and 300 involve a white guy killing a black guy. And I, I think almost everyone would accept that as a fair statement, like blacks and whites are not massacring each other. So that, that's what I'm saying about the police. And it, it gets back to what I just basically said there. I mean, people think that the number of individuals who are unarmed, who are helpless, who are killed by the police annually is somewhere between several hundred, which is what Chernobyl said on primetime Fox News about five years back, and 10,000, which is what 14% uh, of the respondents in the poll I just mentioned estimate. It's something I mentioned, I, I noticed that a Ben Crump either mentions or hints at in his book, which is literally called Open Season, The Legalized Genocide of Colored People. So that, that's what people think. And again, the actual number is seven, you know, siete. You know, this hand plus two fingers. That's the number of totally unarmed black men that are actually gunned down by cops in a fairly typical year. The year before that was 11. The year before that, I think it was 18. The year before that, maybe nine. I don't want to confuse any of these numbers. But they're, they're very consistently very low. Um, I don't recall a year over 35 since 2015, when there was, again, a fair amount of street rioting after Ferguson and so on. So the idea that there's some kind of racial conflict in the streets every day and that kind of the tip of the spear is white policemen and vigilantes, that's just not supported by the evidence. And another point that I'll make is that something people have said in response is, well, there were a small number of lynchings too, but you know, they, they signaled race war, they kept the population down. That doesn't describe really any of these, almost any of these police shootings. I mean, in the Michael Brown shooting, you know, it's always tragic someone loses his life, but Michael Brown is a linebacker-sized dude who initiated a physical confrontation with a cop and grabbed his gun. Like, his DNA was found on the slide and trigger guard of Officer Darren Wilson's gun. These, these two big men, one was 6'4", one was 6'5", were fighting to the death here. And that, that was almost every case. I mean, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman, who's Latino, by the way, he's not white at all. If you've ever seen the guy, he's Afro-Latino. His dad is, I think, half Jewish. That's why the right. name. But I mean, so just if you look at any of these cases, and that's just an example of the dishonesty that goes on beyond what we're talking about. But if you look at that case, again, it was two guys in a fight. Um, both landed some punches looking at their features. But Zimmerman was getting head banged. He was getting his head slammed into a rock surface. He took out a personal firearm. He discharged one shot. Unfortunately, guns get brought into fistfights all the time. If those guys had been of the same race, no one would have ever known either one of their names. Zimmerman would have done one year, a bullet in jail. That's it. I mean, so just if he was convicted at all, um, and he probably wouldn't have been. 
but anyway, blah, blah, blah. The point is that these, there are a very small number of these cases and they don't fit any sort of lynching pattern or any kind of pattern of intentional oppression. They're part of an almost equally small subset of cases, which is the less than 100 people of all races that are shot by the police every year while unarmed. So we can certainly want police to be a little more careful with their firearms, but the idea that there's a mass national scandal based around this happening too much is that's just not real. That's crazy. I didn't know the number was um, seven. Have yeah, you the, just to jump back in for one sentence, like I just said, the number of all unarmed men shot by the police in a typical year is is well under 100. I've never seen it break 90. The large majority of these guys, by the way, are not black, um, poor whites. Hispanics, natives are all at least, if you break out those income categories or those secondary minority groups, other minority groups, I guess we're not ranking people. But I mean, if you break out any of those groups, their police homicide rate is going to be pretty close to that of, of Black people. So one, a story that really is about the use of state violence against working class men Sometimes in pretty inappropriate situations, if you look at Tony Tempa or Dylan Noble, any of these guys, somehow became this blacks versus whites thing, which is actually probably the worst possible way of getting the problem solved. That's that's thing one. And thing two, even with all those guys thrown in, like everyone on every native reservation across the country and so on, you're still not reaching 100 or at 50 annually. So this is not one of the more serious problems in the country. It's just something that the media kind of needed to focus on. There needed to be that race conflict or that class conflict to keep the eyes glued in during, you know, that one period of time. Right. Yeah. One thing I noticed is that whenever... Um something like that happens to a white person, like if a cop uh, brutally assaults a white person, or even with the January 6th issue, um, some people say, well, if it was a black person, this would have happened. Like, for whatever reason, race always seems to find its way injected in the issue, even when there is no racial issue. Um, would you ever consider debating a guy like a Ben Crump on, on some of these issues? Absolutely. The The problem with this from the left is that they will never say yeah. Like, I'd be a little nervous before a big debate with like Nicole Hannah-Jones or something, but I would do it. And I think I'd win. But they absolutely won't. I will tell you, I'm on the, excuse me, I'm on the advisory board for 1776 Unites, which is kind of the black business and social science communities, kind of center, center right response to the 1619 Project. And we've offered, like, look, we'd like to do a real panel with you guys. Like, all of us are very welcome in black communities. Let's go to, I mean, I teach at Kentucky State, right? But, I mean, if you want a bigger school, let's go to Howard or something like that. Let's do three of us, three of you. Whoever wins, you know, the verbal exchange, 100000 to their preferred charity. And it's it's absolutely impossible. Like, I mean, I think the group that's made this challenge includes myself, Glenn Lowry, Coleman Hughes, Bob Woodson, John McWhorter. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure everyone signed up for, you know, every level of it, but very serious people. And the answer is just no. Uh, Ibram Kendi has had a standing debate challenge from Coleman, who now is through college and into grad school, probably made a couple million off his commercial enterprises, like a very serious guy for five years it, so it's just like yeah i would do it but there, there's no chance of that ever happening there's no chance of ben crump coming to the american enterprise institute and debating me not not like where he get he can get to stand up and thunder about like 400 years 400 years young brother but i mean like where he has to actually counter like where the monitor's saying now you know, Mr. Riley made the point that the figure was not 10,000, as you have mentioned in your previous writings, but was rather seven in the 12 minutes assigned to you, Mr. Crump. How do you respond? Like, I don't I don't think he's going to go in for that. Right. So basically, they they wouldn't um, debate you in fear of maybe being exposed. Well, they, they don't debate anybody. I mean, yeah, it, Robin D'Angelo has said this. So. The whole idea here is just pure Kafka trap. If you've ever debated and you're familiar with this Kafka trap, I guess would be the original pronunciation. But I mean, the idea of the trap is that if you say 
no, I'm not thing X. And in fact, I think you're an idiot. I think you're arguing in bad faith. That proves you are thing X. And so the debater no longer needs to engage with you. That's what most of this Ibram Kendi sort of stuff is. So like Kendi's argument is if, if you don't believe in my theory, you're a racist because you have to believe in biological inferiority. And if I say, well, no, that's not true. I believe in something completely different, temporary cultural differences. So your theory is wrong. The response every time I've debated one of his acolytes is, aha, trying to shift away from the Kendi paradigm shows that you're a racist and you're on the side of you know team inferiority. The other trick is to attempt to label anything else as a different kind of inferiority. Like you support cultural inferiority then, you know? So it's just, mm -hmm. the, the, the ideas are almost childishly simple and there are defensive techniques used to respond to them. One of those defensive techniques though is very much not engaging with the person honor, honorably with the person who disagrees with you. So like, if you're not convinced by the material, you must not be understanding the material. You must be rejecting the material. You must right. have cognitive dissonance about the material. This, by the way, is a very old trick on kind of the post-Marxist left. Like recently on Twitter, we were talking about something totally unrelated to this. It was like kink. Like, do women like kink? And the reason this came up is that there was people were debating like the prevalence of choking in pornography. And I'm going to keep this PG. Like we're not going to have a whole dumbass side discussion about this. Right. But I said like, look, I'm not going to get involved in this, but I will say one of the things I find kind of interesting is that all these Christian and feminist women that are talking about people wanting this stuff and the popularity of books like 50 shades of gray seem to be assuming that it's men demanding it. Like it's not men buying 50 shades of gray. Like be honest with yourselves, women, or something like this. And I just put that to the side. I was like, I don't know, this, this will get like 10 likes. And it actually got like 500. And men and women started frantically arguing. And, you know, people were talking about they like sexually. And so I eventually just muted this crap and went to work. But one of the things that people kept saying in the thread was like, yeah, a lot of women may like being tied up and carried around and told what position to get into and blindfolded. But that's because they are controlled by the patriarchy. Men have convinced them that they want to serve men. And a lot of the men and a lot of the women were like, what if they're just kind of aggressive in bed too? And that's what they like. Well, I don't believe that. I believe that, and this, this silly but real example kind of illustrates the process. It's unfalsifiable. If someone believes what you do not like, then that person is, the, the communist term would be false consciousness. So if a black person believes that, you know, you'll face a 5% effect of racism, but you'll also get some affirmative action benefits, and in any case, it's pretty easy to succeed in America, that black person has internalized whiteness. That would be Robin DiAngelo's term. Right. Um, you know, if a poor person believes that they can become wealthy by learning a new skill, that person has false class consciousness. And so on down the line. So like the feminists who actually make up all the buyers for Fifty Shades of Grey and have the people who watch porn, but they have some, they've been convinced they like sex with men by the male patriarchy. And there's just no way to ever show that this is wrong. Now, in reality, of course, this is incredibly stupid. Like class mobility exists for about 70% of us. Of course, women like sex. Of course, there are a lot of wealthy black people. But if you are debating the fanatic, this gives the fanatic a way to opt out of the argument. Like, I don't see why I'd even bother to chat with a brother with false consciousness, Mr. Riley. So mm. in general, they, they will not engage in formal structured debate. Master's tools will never tear down the master's house and, and so forth. It's just right, so all private, inclusive seminar rooms. Okay, so it's like the devil made me do it kind of argument. They always find a loophole to shift the blame somewhere. It's not my fault. That's actually but. really interesting in light of some of those feminist comments. like it, Because with a lot of this stuff, you're almost going back to religion. Like, so if a woman says, I actually feel like I am just kind of kinky and like my man and I trade off when it comes to leadership. Like, what's your problem with that? Satan has control of you. It literally is the idea that there is a force outside you that's making you do something. And when the thing stops, you have to try to control that force again for the rest of your life. And I mean, I think this is how black people are supposed to perceive racism and so on. 
And there's a great element of freedom to just saying, in this case, no, I kind of like kink. And I date guys that aren't abusive, but that also do. But much more seriously, leaving that one to the side. Um, there, there's a great strength to saying as a black person or Asian American or whatever, like, no. Like, I recognize that I'll sometimes experience racism, but I reject this whole framework that goes with that. Like, that contemporary bigotry today is exactly the same as it was 500 years ago, or that my believing I can overcome it reflects folly on my part, you know, and, and so on down mm -hmm. the line. Yeah. Like, we're actually right, but the person who is currently in the throes of the religion will never be able to admit that, so they don't talk to heretics. Right. Well, you know, it's like sometimes when um, you, you find guys like Larry Elder or Thomas Sowell that speak against these uh, prevailing storylines about um, systemic racism. You know, a guy like Tariq Nasheed will say, well, that, that's a white supremacy talking point right there. Um, well, actually, can you, I jump in on this? Because this is this huh. is something that's very important also. Like, it doesn't matter who has previously used an argument. So, like, another one of these social media conversations, um, and I should probably spend more time just doing academic writing, actually. This wastes a lot of time, this sort of goofing around on Twitter and Facebook and so on. Although, it, you know, keeps the debate muscle sharp. It's like going to the dojo. But, I mean, one of, the, one of these conversations that I had that actually got really vicious was came when I asked, look, obviously the old wars historically were bad. You know, the, the great races massacred one another. Blacks got the worst of it in many cases. It's awful stuff. But for everyone in this thread, like I saw Irish people, like natives, blacks, Mexicans. It was like, do any of you think you would be better off if you didn't live in the modern United States today? Like if for if black people, like you were still in Congo and before you white guys feel too good about yourselves, you'd be in Northern Ireland, Moldova, you know, those little islands off the south of Greece, the Native Americans. I mean, there'd be a Bronze Age level of culture here. If that, that was, that was being very generous. You know, do any of you feel that you would be better off under those conditions? And people started responding and saying, well, that's the argument that, you know, conquerors and slaveholders used to make, that by taking over and civilizing this, this wild mass of people that were quarreling with one another, they were doing a good thing. And it's like, well, okay, well, you know, let me say that I, I reject the military. But now that that's off the table, like, do you think you would be better off? you know, had Mexico not developed as it has because of Western influence. I mean, yeah. we're still ruled by the Triple Alliance and they were cutting people's hearts out for the great annual festivals. And for Blacks, like, do you think you would be better if you're still in Africa? And everyone just kept coming back to, you can't say that because a bad man once said it. Mm -hmm. To me, the, the, the only important thing is whether an argument is factually, logically, structurally valid or not. You know, so you could argue that blank slatism in the modern sense of all kids can and will learn was Joseph Stalin's philosophy. He legitimately thought you could take illiterate Ukrainian peasants and make them into nuclear engineers if you read some of the things he said. The fact that Stalin thought this doesn't mean that every teacher that thinks it today is a communist. So it's just it, this sort of idea, this sort of stuff about like, brother, do you know where those ideas come from? It mm -hmm. almost doesn't matter. It, yeah. it, like, yeah. of course, those. Your mind has been bleached by the oppressor. <laughs> um, just to um, move really on a funny. little bit. Um do you talk about critical race theory? And also, currently, I've been hearing uh, about what the media has been talking about, Black history being removed from schools. Is this an issue that you've looked into? And is that true? Well, I would absolutely oppose Black history in the real sense of the Buffalo soldiers and so on being removed from school. I mean, there's no place for that in America at all. Black history is 15% of American history. But uh, invariably, when I look when I look at this stuff, when I go beneath kind of the socially approved patina for all these arguments, what I find is again just more BS. Like, let me pull up something that might at first seem kind of random, but that's a good example of just the complete dishonesty in these conversations on right and left, but the left controls the media. So scroll down here a little bit. There was this heart-wrenching story that was on television a couple of days ago. Where Where's this bad boy? Okay, so Anita Wadhawani, 
A black family from Georgia was pulled over in rural Tennessee for driving with dark tent and traveling in the left lane while not actively passing. Within hours, our fellow citizens had lost custody of all five of their children, including a little nursing baby. So this is this is a, a story about racism. And I actually investigated the case with the help of a research assistant. And I, I ended up posting this like an hour or two later. I actually checked this one out. The reason this happened is that both parents tested positive for not only meth, but also fentanyl. And the kids then told caseworkers that they were being taken along to a drug deal. And I noted the initial tragic hero story in U.S. media, especially on the left, is almost never true. Um, can, can you redirect me, actually? What was your question a little bit before that? No, I was just asking you about, uh, like, critical race theory. And oh, yeah, critical race theory. Yeah. yeah, the talking points about black um, history being removed yeah. from textbooks and things like that. Yeah, boom. Yeah, I'm back on track. So, okay. Um, yeah, so it's the same thing here. Like virtually every time you hear a story like DeSantis, who's a non-racist Italian dude, has removed black history from the schools, you can pretty much assume that that is not real. In fact, under Florida law, there's a duty to teach two years of black history during secondary education, which is better than most states. I think everyone should teach black history, whatever. That in and of itself, I don't have a problem with at all. Uh, the issue is the crazy activism that tends to get inserted into curricula like this, which makes a lot of normal conservatives skeptical of all black history, by the way. But I mean, so in the DeSantis situation, what actually happened was that the curriculum had been that had been developed included all these references to things like Black Lives Matter, the movement, prison liberation, contemporary queer theory got 21 references. One of the things that's really interesting about the leadership team of Black Lives Matter, by the way, is that they're primarily gay, not black activists. So I actually did an article once for Spiked UK. It's called Black Lives Matter's Missing Billions. Audience members can look it up if they want to. Black Lives Matter's Missing Billions. But I, I, was, I was sure the group was a little bit corrupt, but I was curious about who they were giving money to, like which organizations in the hood, you know, are, is, are they helping out Hawk Newsom? Are they helping out Occupy the Hood? Yeah, are they giving the BDs money back home in Chicago? Like, I thought it would be a little crooked, but I thought it would make sense. Like, what about peacemakers? What about ceasefire? Like, anyone who's been black in the city knows what I'm talking about. And it wasn't any of that. That was the craziest thing. What they did mostly was give money to LGBT rights organizations um, like the Transgender Travel Fund. I'd have to pull up the article, but there was a list of about yeah. 15 organizations that got checks for more than $100,000. And they were all like For the Gorals, which is a black transgender network, uh, Trans Femmes and the Arts, the Audre Lorde Trans Justice Project, and so on down the line. So... This is something that every time BLM, the organization, is active with a curriculum, gets inserted. I think there were 21 references to contemporary queer politics in the Florida curriculum. And so DeSantis said, no, you need to get this out of here and you need to come back with, you know, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman and so on. You know, a, a. Philip Randolph, Jackie Robinson, whatever. And the reaction became, well, DeSantis banned black history. And that's that's what happens when the media is in your pocket. But no, that's that's never real. There's never going to be a governor of a major American state that says it's illegal to teach about the Negro Leagues or something like that. That's that's not what occurred. That's interesting. I have to look more into that because I've been hearing this forever. And like you see this on the headlines a lot. Um I also wanted to ask you, you talked about uh, in one of your books, immigration policies um, and how immigration policies aren't racist. Um, again, you hear from the media that, you know, when Trump was in office, he was he was racist towards Mexicans. He, would, he was putting up a lot of restrictions towards immigrants. Talk about how immigration policies aren't racist. Well, the, the point there was just it wasn't defending anything Trump or Biden did specifically. It was just saying right. that obviously having an immigration policy is not some kind of racist, fascistic move. If you've ever been to one of the many, many successful black and brown countries on Earth, you know, the Bahamas, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, Nigeria, Mexico itself, 
Brazil, China and Chile, Argentina are a frequent Olympic opponent. They have very strict uh, immigration policies, in part because they're generally surrounded by less successful minority majority countries. And I mean, South Africa, and they don't want to be swamped by people from those places. South Africa and Botswana have brutal immigration policies because they're at the tip of Africa. And they're both pretty successful societies. There's some racial quarreling in South Africa, but I mean, they also have like the Joburg shopping mall. So there's there's this reality of we can't have people coming here from like the Democratic Republic of the Congo and living in the streets. So immigration policies exist around the world. They exist in almost every country. They exist at a range of levels of severity. And my point in the book was simply that there's there's nothing wrong with having one. We can't not have one. And I suggested that we kind of have a logical one. Um, that it'd be absolutely anti-racist to kind of shut up the libs, but also because racism is bad, but that we look at some basic things like what's the problem with an IQ test for immigrants? We can't do that for citizens. Immigrants ain't citizens yet. Uh, what's the problem with the basic phys physical fitness scan? You know, I mean, we're at a point right now where the, uh, you know, IQ is a touchy topic. I, th I think that tested IQ gaps have nothing to do with genes, basically a lot to do with culture, a lot to do with training. But all groups in the USA, including African-Americans and Latinos, now are well over 90. It's like 92 is our baseline. Asians are at 104, something like that. Something really impressive. So if people are going to come here, they need to be able to get close to that standard because they need to be hireable in this country. Um, so that was point one. People need to be fit. What did I say? Reasonably intelligent, physically fit, sane, and not criminal. It struck me as just really non-controversial. And this was actually the most controversial thing in the book. People were emailing me asking if I'd reject like a one-legged refugee with AIDS. And it was just sort of like, well, not if he was a refugee, but I mean, like, yeah, that, that, that shouldn't be the basis of our immigration policy. We, we shouldn't focus on one-legged men with AIDS. It's not, that's not really the pool we need the most of. Like, give me some master carpenters, some Mexican chefs, you know, give me some engineers, like bring in people that are going to do something for the country. Right, so, right. I mean, that was that was for whatever reason seen as controversial, but it was just obvious. So, yeah, it was um, sane, non-criminal, able-bodied, reasonably intelligent, just absolutely anti-racist, but just a normal immigration policy. Right. right now, we don't really have an immigration policy at all because you can just walk across the southern border. Have you ever been to the border? Uh, once actually, I, I had a, a relative that lived in um, southern part of Texas. Yeah, Long I mean, so you've, you've you've seen it. It's just like a line. Yeah, like I mean, like most of the ranchers like fence it off on both sides to be polite. Yeah. But I mean, like to get into the USA, I mean, if you're like I was a cross country man in high school, like if I wanted to get into the USA from Mexico, I would just walk. Like I mean, it's like maybe a forty mile walk from the nearest border crossing post to like. El Paso, like just yeah. put some water in your backpack. Yeah, immigration is a funny subject. I have uh, friends that have um, come from different countries, and they tell me about like some of the inconveniences they have with trying to get become citizens. But then I also talk to people who aren't citizens and are doing great for themselves and barely speak any English, so it's 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 weird. But um, uh, two last questions before we wrap up. You when you were All talking right. about IQ. I think I heard you talk about Charles Murray's book, The Bell Curve. And I think I remember his book being controversial because people were saying that he was claiming that the IQ levels of blacks were due to genetics or something like that. And I think well, I, you you talked oh, about that in an interview. Yeah, I, I disagree with that. I mean, so or at least did he mostly, say that, though? Uh, kind of. I, I think that there's no doubt that Murray is what's called a hereditarian. I mean, he's a, he's skillful with these words. He's not going to say something. And by the way, I don't think he believes, like, I don't like black people. But he's not going to say something like, yep, there are more dumb people in the South, because his critique would apply to whites there as well. Like, he, he's not going to say that. So he says things like, well, it's a complex mix of social and systemic and cultural and genetic factors. I mean, you, you learn how to dance if you've been on the stage for a while. Um, I do not think that and when i said mostly you know there are genetic differences between people like samoans are the largest human group you see this every sunday if you're a football fan as i am so i mean it, it's just kind of silly to say something like samoans aren't on average big or like umbuti pygmies aren't on average small 
Yeah. It, so could something like that theoretically exist in the realm of intellect? Yeah, theoretically, like it's dishonest for us to pretend that it that it couldn't. But with that said, yeah, I, I've critiqued Charles Murray's books a couple of times and I find them pretty unconvincing. And I'll, I'll guess I'll go through why very briefly. By the way, I have to get off by like 102. You know, so. OK, well, because I have to go to I have to go to class at 105. But I mean, so. Just very briefly, some issues with Murray's books. First, the IQs of people in the world keep changing. So like Murray in the bell curve quotes this very low black IQ of 84. And he says, you know, I have some suspicions about how high we can rise, increase this. Now, in his next book, Facing Reality, or his next book on this topic, just a couple of years ago, he mentions almost in passing that the black IQ is 91. Meaning that there's been a seven-point increase in the black IQ. Now, the whole black-white IQ gap is only like 15 points. There's been a seven-point IQ increase for black people specifically since he last wrote. And so that, to me, is the really interesting question. Not like with everything equalized down the road when we all have IQs of 130, will Asians still have an IQ of 133? Like, maybe. You know? Go do you, country man. But right. I think that the, the key question is what closed that gap? And to me, it seems obvious it's more study time spent, less racism, better food. Like there are obvious factor variables that you can bring into play that boost IQ. Um, and I, I guess the non-hereditarian perspective is we, we've seen this around the world. Gotcha. Where, you know, the, the average IQ of Ireland has increased dramatically. Some people like Russell Warren will debate how dramatically, but no one denies right. from like 92 to 100 plus, um, you know. So on okay. down the line. Gotcha. Last question. Um, who can people go to along with yourself to listen to, to refute the talking points that we might hear from a guy like Ben Crump or Al Sharpton, you know, the typical narratives that we hear on MSNBC, who are some speakers or authors that people can listen to that refute these talking points that, you know, somebody's going to chase you down the street with the news and America's systemically I, I, racist. I think the goat on that is Tom Soule, who's pointed out all these crime stats, like blacks a little higher, but then you adjust for age and all that stuff 30 years ago. You know, I mean, that, that's the OG. But I mean, really, if you go to a website like Free Black Thought, FBT, or 1776 Unites, I mean, you'll find dozens of essays on all these topics. Uh, so I'd say 1776 Unites with Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, John Sibley Butler, Coleman Hughes. You know, just on and on down the line. Beth Feely, that's one good resource. Uh, Free Black Thoughts, another one. And that, I mean, those two contain probably 50 people. So those those would be the recommendations I would give right off the bat. And obviously, you know, follow right. me and engage with me. I'm always down to answer a question. Go ahead. Plug your stuff. Well, I'm, I'm actually done. My stuff to, okay. to follow to follow me, just Google Wilfred Riley. The name's on the screen. You'll find my books, which are mostly bestsellers, frankly. My Twitter website, so on down the line. So I hope you do. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on today, Will. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm going to exit out of here now, but uh, look forward to talking in the future.